The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. The Champions was a 1967 adventure series from ITC that featured all the things you would expect from a 1960s adventure show from ITC. By which I mean it had a cool premise, cool characters, globe-trotting adventure, a smattering of action, and some ropey rear projection and backlot filming, where a few potted plants tried to convince the audience that the characters are in Provence. Which is not to say The Champions was a cheap show. On the contrary. As with all the ITC adventure shows of the era, The Champions was a slick, quite handsomely budgeted affair, featuring three lead actors, a supporting actor, and scripts that were generally a cut above some of the other series being produced by the ITC production house of the time. ITC were making shows for the international market and competed on that level. Not for them, the threadbare production values of BBC adventure shows. ITC were aware that if they wanted to sell these shows abroad, they needed to spend money like the big boys. It is therefore a credit to them that the shows they made in their heyday, the late 1960s to early 1970s, can go toe-to-toe with the glossy US imports of the day, such as The Man From Uncle, Mission Impossible or Irwin Allen's productions. All these shows had a lot in common. They all purported to be about planet-wandering travellers or interstellar adventurers, when in fact they rarely left the back lot. The back lot, in the case of the Champions, was Elstree Studios in London, doubling for many an exotic location. Elstree has seen many a production in its day, from the Muppets to Indiana Jones to EastEnders. The Champions was a little different to the IT series being made at the time, though. I was a kid when all these were in reruns, and although I could always tell a 60s show from a 70s or an 80s show, 60s shows tended to look sharper and be more colourful, the champions had something else going for it. It was a superhero show. Well, kind of. Created by Monty Berman and Dennis Spooner, both familiar names on British television due to the latter's association with Jerry Anderson and the former's work on The Saint, The Champions starred ITC regular Stuart Damon as Craig Sterling. Damon, a successful Broadway and West End theatre actor, lived in the UK for a while in the late 60s, early 70s, and cropped up regularly on ITC shows whenever the script called for a token American. He was an obnoxious rich oil baron opposite Roger Moore in The Saint, in an episode said to have been the inspiration for Moore's next series, The Persuaders. He was an egotistical actor in UFO and had a memorable role in a two-part adventure of Space 1999. This is probably more familiar to international viewers as the made-for-television movie and or director video film Destination Moonbase Alpha. 
Damon has the distinction of being sacked from one of his co-starring roles, that of Gene Barry's sidekick in the series The Adventurer, for being taller than Gene Barry. Actors are a precious bunch. Damon was a personable and likeable presence, and it was always nice to see him make an appearance, be it in any of the aforementioned shows, The New Avengers, or Black Beauty, or any of the other weirdo places that he would show up with some degree of regularity. Damon passed away in 2021, aged 84. Damon was backed by William Gaunt as Richard Barrett. Gaunt was another familiar face, but as a much older man. Seeing him fresh-faced on the Champions was quite a shock to me, as I was more familiar with his bearded, more grizzled visage from appearances in the Doctor Who serial, Revelations of the Daleks, and his two hugely successful sitcoms, No Place Like Home and Next of Kin. Gaunt is still acting to this day. The third champion was the stunningly beautiful Alexandra Bastido as Sharon McCrady. Looking like a cross between Grace Kelly and a Greek marble statue come to life, Bastido was multilingual, which led to a stint working as a translator at 10 Downing Street. She was more proud of her activism in protecting animals than her acting career, although she still popped up here and there, appearing in Batman Begins in 2005. Best known as the co-host of Miss World in the 80s, Bastido passed away in 2014 at only 67 years of age. The fourth member of the cast was the boss, Tremaine, played by Anthony Nichols. Nichols had a long career on stage and screen, passing away in 1977, aged 74. But what was Tremaine the boss of, I hear you ask? An excellent question, lovely listener. Tremaine was the chief of Nemesis, a United Nations-supported, European-based law enforcement agency that specialised in espionage. In all honesty, Nemesis seemed to be a catch-all agency, responsible for whatever the plot called for them to be responsible for this week. The pilot episode, titled with great originality, The Beginning, begins in media res. Our three main characters are already on a mission in China, trying to locate and steal a biological agent that the Chinese are developing. The opening is fast-paced and well-edited, grabbing the audience straight away. Our three heroes are seen behind enemy lines, stealing the nerve agent, already deep into their mission. They're spotted, seen and pursued, but manage to effect their escape in a plane, secreted away for the purposes of allowing our heroes a quick egress. However, the Chinese opposite numbers open fire, clipping the starboard engine. It's a beautifully well-orchestrated cold open. The action is well choreographed, with a number of excellently framed shots. Clearly, some location work was undertaken by the B-Unit production crew, whilst the A-Unit dealt with close-up and the actors. This seems to also include some very obvious day-for-night filming. I've heard some producers on audio commentaries for shows and films of this era point out the day-for-night filming and proudly boast that the audience never noticed. This shows a deep ignorance of the audience's intelligence. Whilst I may not have known exactly what day-for-night filming was when I was a kid, the practice of filming a night scene in the day but with a blue filter over the lens to save money, I always spotted that it looked a bit naff. The aeroplane footage is also nicely done. Some Jerry Anderson-esque model work is combined with stock shots to convey the overall effect, which it does nicely, successfully covering that the actors never went anywhere near China. 
All of this is edited together exceptionally well to create a suspenseful and edge-of-the-seat opener, which treats the audience with some respect, neither spelling out what's happening nor allowing them a moment to breathe. It grabs the audience by the throat before leaping into the opening credit theme by Tony Hatch, better known nowadays as the man who wrote the theme to the Australian soap opera Neighbours. Here it is. The theme to the champions, not the theme to Neighbours. I don't think I'd do that to you. <laughs> Sadly, we then slow down a bit. I'd rather we kept up the pace a little, but inexplicably, in the middle of this life-or-death chase, Sharon and Richard have time for a chat whilst Craig is busy trying to fly a plane with one engine missing. It's a rather expository piece of dialogue between the two, but it explains, albeit clumsily, that Sharon is very bright, with numerous degrees and a few additional letters after her name whilst simultaneously mentioning that she is new to Nemesis following the recent death of her husband. Richard rather callously writes this off, pointing out that Sharon is still quite young and will marry again. Cheers, Richard. Your sympathy is well noted by the HR department. All the while, Craig is struggling to keep the plane in the sky, pointing out that if they crash land here in the Himalayas, the snow will cover their plane within moments and they will never be found. On the plus side, the nerve agent they've stolen will be out of the enemy's hands. On the negative side, they'll be dead. Craig fights valiantly with the controls, but, lacking an engine, his struggles are all for naught, and down they go. <laughs> Model work, whilst not up to the standards of Jerry Anderson's productions, is pretty good although the crash itself is achieved via the actors chucking themselves about a bit with reckless abandon and the crew throwing debris at them. Back in Geneva, Tremaine has to explain to two high-up officials why the mission's gone tits up. He can't really give them much in the way of information because he doesn't know himself. It's implied here that the threesome are heavily banged up and, in Sharon and Richard's case, possibly even dead. The episode then takes a turn into the surreal as Craig is taken away by a man with a long flowing beard, long grey hair and robes. They're not dead, and it's not Jesus. It's more like Gandalf. It's not actually immediately apparent what occurs here, but I have to say the way scriptwriter Dennis Spooner doles out his information is very much appreciated. He takes his time showing us the cold open without really explaining what's going on. There's enough to pick up the gist of the events unfolding, but it's only later we learn who Craig, Richard and Sharon are, and who they're working for. We slowly learn the importance of their mission, the retrieval or theft of a biological germ warfare, as I've already alluded to, and that Craig and Richard are seasoned agents with a history of working together. 
Spooner is making the audience pay attention. Hell, by having an introductory episode at all, he's booking the trend. ITC shows tended to eschew an origin episode, rather just starting with a regular show and having the audience play catch-up as they went along. Not for ITC, the long-winded explanations of who these characters were and how they came to be. The mystery of Tibetan Gandalf is also handled well. Spooner avoids direct explanation because any such information would probably be considered rather silly. By not explaining how Craig, Richard and Sharon have been resurrected, he leaves it to the imagination. He also creates some dissension in the ranks. Richard wants explanations. He needs to know how and why they were saved. But Craig and Sharon prefer to return to the mission. This splits our heroes up, with Richard trying to find the city of Tibetan Gandalf and Craig and Sharon trying to make their rendezvous point. Sadly, this all feels a little bit padded. After a cracking opening, Richard is left essentially trying to find out information that we, the audience, already know. Craig has seen Tibetan Gandalf, and Tibetan Gandalf has kind of explained what's going on. Yes, Richard gets a little more knowledge, but not so much as it feels like a great deal of new information has been imparted. It does, however, establish that there is now a connection between the three leads. They can sense each other when they're in danger. Slowly, we start to learn more about whatever it is has been done to the threesome. In addition to being able to sense each other's presence and any serious wounds healing quickly, they also have advanced hearing and other abilities, although Tibetan Gandalf is clear to point out that they can be killed and aren't immortal. The threesome regroup and take out the Chinese in incredibly bloodthirsty ways for the time that this was made. Craig opens fire with a machine gun at point-blank range, mowing the Chinese officers down, and Richard drops boulders on their heads. We don't actually see it, but one can only assume it made an incredibly satisfying squish noise. I don't recall other ITC shows being this quick to callously murder everyone, no matter how nefarious they are. In the biggest surprise, though, the threesome do not take their boss into their confidence upon their successful return to Geneva with the biological agent. Instead, they elect to keep it between the three of them. This was a marked departure from other shows of this kind, where the man in the chur is also aware of the special abilities of the agents. But I guess they were already spies, so it's not like they were press-ganged into service after they became superhuman. The Champions was a fun diversion when it resurfaced on ITV4 in glorious HD. It's not a modern show by any stretch, and I don't really know that it holds up. It's a tad talky and slow in places, and this opening episode lags in the middle. However, it's got a great premise and interesting ideas that just aren't explored as well as they could be, because, well because this is an ITC action-adventure show from the 60s, and characterization wasn't at the forefront of the creators' minds. As with all ITC shows, it's formulaic. The story structure follows the US TV format of a teaser and four acts to make for easy foreign sales, and each show averages 48 minutes in length, when the average length of a UK show made for the commercial networks at this time, allowing for ads, was 52 minutes. 
the opening of every single episode was a shot of the map of the world and then a quick zoom to establish where this week's episode would take place, followed by the teaser. As of episode two, a saga cell was added. Three people, Craig Sterling, Sharon McCready and Richard Barrett, endowed with the qualities and skills of superhumans. Qualities and skills both physical and mental to the peak of human performance. Gifts given to them by an unknown race of people from a lost city in Tibet. Gifts that are a secret to be closely guarded. A secret that enables them to use their powers to their best advantage as the champions of law, order, and justice. Operators of the international agency of Nemesis. The Champions is good, but not good enough to be that memorable, but different and innovative enough to warrant further exploration. It's crying out for a reboot or reimagining or regurgitation in that it's not memorable enough to have a rabid fan base, but has enough interesting ideas in it that weren't really explored to the full first time round. It's one of those shows that really should be rebooted, but doesn't have enough cachet or IP interest or audience knowledge for this to be the case. So I was incredibly surprised to hear announced on the radio that Ben Stiller and Kate Blanchett are teaming up to turn the champions into a movie. Stiller is apparently going to be acting and directing, and Kate Blanchett will presumably be playing the Alexandra Bastido role. No mention is made of who will be playing the third role, and it's not mentioned whether Stiller will be playing Craig or Richard. I would imagine he's playing Craig. This isn't perhaps what I was thinking of when I said this show could do with a reboot. Long in the memory does Ben Stiller's terrible adaptation of Starsky and Hutch linger, where he took a serious dramatic show with funny bits, yes, but a show that tackled many important issues of the day and turned it into a frat boy comedy. I'm kind of hoping... He remembers this time that The Champions was, for the most part, a serious show. That's not to say they can't have some funny moments. They can. But let's not get carried away, eh, Ben? Kate Blanchett's a good addition, though. So we shall take a wait-and-see option with the forthcoming movie, The Champions. Hey, Ryan. I know we're taking a break from Batman Nightcast, but I've been thinking about the Nightfall storyline where Jean-Paul Valley temporarily took over the role of Batman. I see where you're going with this. If you were ever paralyzed, I would be honored to take care of Cindy and your kids. Uh, no, that's not where I was going. I was thinking about all the many characters who have filled in for Bruce Wayne as Batman over the years. Dick Grayson, Tim Drake. Commissioner Gordon, for some reason. Yeah, that did happen. Anyway, on the subject of temporary replacements... Your son Andrew is going to take over Supermates? No. Focus on Batman. Why is this so hard? While we're away from Nightcast for a while longer, someone could come in and do a Batman-related show for the Fire & Water Network. Well, I know Paul Keane loves the Batman Family comic book. I've seen Sean M. Myers post a few things about Batman Family, too. Do you think they'd... We'll do it! For those of you who aren't familiar with the series, Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978, and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, 
Commissioner Gordon, Manbat, and even Ragman and the Demon. So you're all invited to the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, taking over the Batman Nightcast feed. Coming in January to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This could be the sensational podcast find of 2022. Okay, let's look in the mailbag, should we? Which, um, the Christmas episode, which was about a Spider-Man comic, and of course the Monkeys episode, the Christmas show, or a Christmas episode, or whatever it was called, uh, attracted quite a fair bit of email, which is always nice. Our first email is from John Schaefer Hames. Hey, Andy. Hello, John. Your show about everyone's second favourite purposefully misspelled musical foursome really made my day. I've been a fan of the Monkeys since they debuted in syndication back in the 80s. I became a huge fan of their zany comedy shenanigans as well as their music. I bought pretty much their entire catalogue on cassette. Even their 90s not hit Pool It, which by that time was just Peter and Davey. This caused a brief period of grief in the 90s, as once I was in college, I met music snobs who informed me that they were a cheap rip-off of the Beatles and not worth considering. If you gave them enough time, they would eventually tell you oh, the Beatles weren't really a lot great either. I was happy once I grew up and realised that these people just weren't worth talking to and I could just enjoy the music. And besides, they had some very good songs that hold up just as well as a number of the Fab Fours hits. Pleasant Valley Sunday still resonates as an outcry against social conformity. Rows of houses that are all the same and no one seems to care. And who doesn't love Daydream Believer? Check out their album Good Times from 2016, which sadly only featured Mike and Mickey, but shows that their talent has not waned over the years. Me and Magdalena is a genuinely beautiful song. Yeah, Good Times was a, a surprise hit. I like, there's a lot of good ones on that. One of the songs got quite a lot of airplay uh, over here, if memory serves. The, the What's It one. She brings the roots and the chips and root beer. Dee, 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 dee. That one. When she comes along, she brings the summer. That one got quite a lot of airplay. That's a catchy little ditty. I like that. It's a good album, that. By sad coincidence, continues John, Maggie and I had randomly decided to watch a few Monkeys episodes and a documentary about them on YouTube just two days before we learned that Mike Nesmith has died. Your tribute to him and them was very much appreciated. Hope you had the happiest of holidays and the best of New Year's. Well, yes, thank you, John, I did, and um, I hope you did too. What's interesting about that, I, I pretty much discovered the Monkeys at the same time in the 80s, and I did some Google phone and looked on the BBC Genome Project. They seemed to get shown on both BBC and ITV, but I primarily remember them on BBC. They did. They started airing the Monkeys in late 1966, so they were pretty quick to jump on the Monkeys bandwagon, presumably because the songs will have started charting at that point. But they started rerunning the show in 1981, and the BBC stayed steadfast to the Monkeys' car till about 1987. And in those six years, they ran and reran and rerun those two years' worth of shows all over the place. Saturday mornings, in the afternoons, everywhere on BBC One and BBC Two. So if you grew up in the 80s over here, and it sounds like you too as well, John, um, you, you, you became a Monkeys fan, even though the music was at that point 20 years old, because the, the shows held up as entertainment. Um, some people dismiss them as childish fun, but I've watched a few more episodes since I recorded that one. And um, there's a lot going on in the Monkeys. I think it's fair to say that Moonlighting owes an awful lot to the Monkeys in terms of breaking the fourth wall and acknowledging that they're a television show 
and all of that stuff. That um, I was quite interested in it. Our next email is from Michael Bailey, the monkeys. What is it? This is a, this is very amusing to me. I'm just going to take a break there. I spent, as ever with this show, what people are attracted to, what people respond to, fascinates me. I'm always interested in that. I looked at Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and all kinds of other Spider-Man comics for a Christmas story, or Christmas-adjacent story, that other people possibly wouldn't be covering. Now, ultimately, that's folly, because there's an awful lot of comic book podcasts, and we're all drinking from the same pool. So the odds of you being able to find one that nobody else is going to talk about is quite slim. And I acknowledge that, and you know, but I, I at least tried. And I spent ages trying to think of one, and I found that one, and I read it, and you type it up, and you do your research, and all of that. And then I heard Mike Nesmith has died just before I was going to record it, and I found the Christmas episode and threw that out there. I hadn't scripted that bit. It was completely ad-libbed and off the cuff. And that's the bit that everybody has written in about. Everyone has written in about the monkeys. And it's one of those things you don't realise that the monkeys had such a cultural footprint until something like this happens. So that was fascinating to me. Anyway, Michael Bailey's emailed in. Andy, I enjoyed your look at the Paul Jenkins Spider-Man story, but your monkeys talk was the highlight of the episode for me. The show made a comeback on MTV around 1985, and it became a favourite of nine and then ten-year-old me as 85 became 86. I loved the music and I loved that it was silly. One of my sisters bought a Best of the Monkeys LP, and it became part of the musical soundtrack of those years. I particularly loved to listen to the band, mainly because it was led by Nesmith, who was my favourite of the group. Do you know what I like watching the early ones again? I like that there's a really short two-minute song in a very, very early episode, and it's um, it's by David, and it's it goes something like, I guess I should have stayed in bed, my pillow wrapped around my head, instead of waking up to find a nightmare of a different kind, she went away, this just doesn't seem to be my day, and that's just such a lovely little catchy little song, I forget which episode it's in, it's in a very early one, because what I did was, as usual, I did some Google food and I researched that and I discovered there's like three different first episodes of the monkeys there's the one they actually shot as a pilot that was heavily re-edited before it went to uh there was the first episode to uh which wasn't shot first and then there was the first episode that they shot after shooting the pilot so there's three different first episodes and i think i watched all three of them and i can't remember which one which song that's in which of those three but um it's a lovely little song it's like two minutes and it just stuck in my head for ages after I'd watched that episode. That's good songwriting. I don't care what you say about them being prefab for or anything like that. If you can write a two-minute pop song that sticks in somebody's head immediately after hearing it for the first time, that's good songwriting. Anyway, Michael continues. The thing is, despite Shag's belief otherwise, my memory is not a steel trap. I remember very little of the show, and I never went back and watched it as an adult. I remember the music. I remember the reunion in 1986. That was then. This is now. The big single from said reunion got a lot of airplay. And I remember the Christmas reunion where Nesmith showed up right at the end. He was not a part of the majority of the reunions for various reasons. I remember that reunion from 1996. That's the one I was alluding to earlier on. And the premise of that episode was brilliant. I think Nesmith wrote it. The premise of the episode is that the monkeys have carried on making shows for 30 years, but we've just not been watching them. And I just thought that was genius, because it's what happens to TV characters after their TV show gets cancelled. They carry on making episodes, 
but we just don't get to watch them anymore. Oh, that was just such a brilliant, what would nowadays be called meta premise. Oh, that was great. Fun fact, continues Michael, his mother invented liquid paper. Kind of a big deal. Yeah, it made him very wealthy, didn't it? What I found was interesting as well, Peter Tork and Mike Nesmith never got along, according to Mike Nesmith. They, they, they kind of had a grudging respect for each other, but they were never really friends. And that was quite interesting. That was quite fascinating to me. Michael continued, one of the snippets of memory that came blurring back was the song you played at the end. I remember watching that episode and loving the piece. As an adult, I appreciate the harmonies and the talent. They were ahead of their time as well as being of their time. Yeah, that's an excellent way of putting it. They are very, those episodes, when you go back and watch them now, they're very clearly of the 1960s, whilst somehow inexplicably being timeless. I'd encourage you to go and watch a couple of them if you've got any kind of soft spot for the prefab for. Sad that they're almost all gone. Merry Christmas, my friend Mikey might be. Yeah, it is It is a shame that um, Mickey DeLenz is last man standing, isn't it? That is That is a shame. Rob McCarthy emailed in, I saw the monkey's Christmas for the first time last year. I was glad it had a happy ending. I am very glad it had a happy ending as well. I hope your Christmas had a happy ending also. That about wraps it up for this time. 30 minutes is always enough, I think, for these kinds of things. Uh, I'll be back next time. I've got a couple of things on the pipeline. I may do ranking the Bond movies next. I may jump into Len Wein's Spider-Man run. I may do something completely different. All depends on where the muse takes me. You can email me as well on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Drop by. Say hi. Everybody's welcome. We're a broad church. Take care and I'll see you all next time. We'll close out the show with that monkey's track. This just doesn't seem to be my day. And remember, it's all going to be okay. I guess I should have stayed in bed, my pillow wrapped around my head, instead of waking up to find that I pair of a different guy, she went away. This just doesn't seem to be my day. She didn't have to say a lot, her busy eyes reveal the blood, for someone else she wanted more.